All right. Uh, thank you. That's, uh, that's too kind. Thank you so much. I, I want you to know um, I love New Life Fellowship Church and have for a long time. I don't mean to sound like a stalker, but I've actually been following the ministry of this church for about 13 years, especially as, as Rich described my graduate degree, as I discovered your passion for emotional health and how you fuse that with your spiritual life as well. I also want you to know I love your pastor. I love Rich. The ministry he has, um, it's been really a treat for me to see him in action as a pastor here, but also his ministry to me and and his ministry around the world and in God's kingdom, it's incredible. Uh, I'm an Australian, as you can probably tell, but I do live in Colorado. And even though I live in a city, we actually have some wildlife around. It's just like two weeks ago, uh, wildlife uh, police had to come and tranquilize an elk in the neighborhood next to my neighborhood. This elk had got lost. He'd, he'd gotten confused. He ended up in a kid's playground. And out they come with the tranquilizer, this poor elk, and they relocate him to the mountains. So we have a lot of elk in Colorado. I cannot tell you how comforting it was for me to come to the big city, walk into this church and see this elk out front. It was, it was an amazing gift. Those of you online, if you've never visited this church, this used to be an elk's lodge, and there's a giant uh, sculptured elk. I just want to thank whoever Rich got to sculpture the elk for my visit. Like, you know who you are. Thank you so much. It had to, looking at it, it had to take at least four hours. Like, it looked like it was a real effort, and the way you made it look like it had been there for decades, just, just amazing. All right, so as we've shared, we're in a season of Advent, and Advent is a time of expectation. It's a time of hope. I, I love what Rich said, that, that we celebrate that Christ has come. We also celebrate that Christ is coming, and what I really appreciate is the way Rich said, and we look for Christ to come to us every day. What a, what a, what a gift. Uh, it's not just a time of expectation. It's also a time where we celebrate light And the way that John says in his first gospel, John chapter 1, where he says, the light shines in darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. When we hear that phrase that the light shines in the darkness, I think our tendency in Advent is to think of light out there and darkness out there. We look around our society, we see the chronic problems, the escalation of violence, What I would like to do this morning is invite us to take some time and consider how we can receive Advent, not out there alone, but in here. The light in here and and the darkness in here. Advent in our interior world, not just our exterior one. What could our life look like if we held an Advent expectation, an Advent sense of wonder? What could our life look like if we let uh, God's light infiltrate some of the darkest areas of our thinking patterns and our inner world and our inner life. You know, some of those stories that we tell ourselves that we don't really take time to look at all the time. I think what we have to do is start with the Gospels. And when I say Gospels, I don't mean, for those of you who are church people, I don't mean Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. I mean the messages that we hear. You know, when we think of the word gospel, we we just think of Jesus. But actually, gospel, it simply means good news. And in the Bible times, before the word gospel was ever a religious word, it was actually an empire word. It was a word that was first used by the Roman Empire that the Bible writers, I, I kind of find this wonderful, they provocatively stole it from the Roman Empire and repurposed it in the church. And gospel just means propaganda message. 
Of course, it means good news. So Caesar Augustus had a gospel. And you can actually Google this on your own. Maybe some of you right now, you're back in high school. You're like, I think I learned this in high school. Caesar Augustus, he had his own poet. This poet would walk around and write poetry about Augustus. Maybe something Rich might consider in his life, just having his own poet writing about him. And Virgil, the poet, said Caesar Augustus' birth is a day of good news because he's the son of God. Julius Caesar, Augustus's adoptive dad, died. And after Julius died, they made him a god. And they said that makes Caesar Augustus his son. He's the son of God. And today, this is word for word from uh, Virgil, the Roman poet. Today is a day of good news and glad tidings, they say. They even steal some of our Christmas carols back then. And so when we look at gospel, we're not simply thinking about the gospel of Jesus. We're thinking about any propaganda message that we believe that we, that we uh, use. Uh, one of the helpful ways to think of a gospel is that it comes in two parts. It has a path that it wants you to walk. And then if you walk that path properly, it gives you a promise. It, it kind of dangles a promise in front of you. So basically, if you want this thing, this promise, do this thing. Walk this path, get this promise. Uh, I, I was infiltrated with some Gospels when I walked through Times Square a couple of days ago. Man, there's Gospels everywhere in Times Square, and they're all very brightly colored. And uh, I, was, I was kind of pondering Times Square, actually trying to make sense of Times Square and why there were so many people there. And I looked up, and sure enough, there's a Gospel right in front of me. There's Brad Pitt. And this giant screen, and he just looks so at peace drinking his espresso from a certain branded coffee machine. And I looked at Brad drinking that espresso and just the way he just looked contented, like there was not a single problem in the world. And I just thought, I wonder if I were to buy that espresso machine, would I be as content as Brad? And would I look as good as Brad? Um, I don't have that brand espresso machine, but this morning I did grab some hotel drip coffee. No good. It didn't, it didn't do the same thing. But it, it, it's offering me a path and it's giving me a promise. So the invitation this morning is to just take some time to examine the Gospels that you believe in your life. What path are they putting you on? And what promise are they offering? Most Gospels have the same promise. Some version of peace, freedom, and love. That's generally what most Gospels promise. Peace, freedom, and love. Um, what I've noticed is even though I'm a pastor and I'm a, I'm a so-called proclaimer of the gospel of Jesus Christ, I find myself continuing to believe in and chase too many gospels. I, I've wondered actually if that's why we're all so exhausted. Is that why we need to take an afternoon nap because we're chasing too many gospels? Is that why we binge Hallmark movies? Because we just need to escape the tyranny of all these paths and promises. I think if you had to summarize my life, I think what I'm trying to do is put all my eggs in the one gospel basket, the one true gospel. And you would think it's easy, but actually even as a pastor, I find it to be not a natural thing for me and not an easy thing. Uh, I became a Christian when I was a teenager and I was completely unchurched. And none of my family, none of my extended family are church people. Even several years ago, my oldest sister who led me to Christ. She came to Christ and then she led her little brother to Christ, uh, which was a great kindness because she didn't like me very much back then. So it's very kind. We're very close now. We're the only two believers in our family. Several years ago, she went to one of those big family reunions. There were 160 people at the family reunion. She was the only believer. 
So I come from a very secular heritage. And, uh, and so, you know, in the 1980s, before I became a believer, I was living for, I guess what I would call the gospel of 1980s Aussie teenagers. The promise was popularity. Uh, maybe the deeper promise was fitting in or, or that thing that teenagers crave most just to feel like you belong. And, and the path was pretty straightforward. You had to know how to make a girl laugh. You had to be good at sports. You had to be good at academics. There was another teenage gospel, you, you just had to be weird. And I just knew I wouldn't be able to pull that off. I was too straight an arrow as a kid. I was too boring as a kid. But if you could make a girl laugh, if you could be good at academics, if you could be good at sports, actually, honestly, even if you could do two out of three, you'd get the promise. And those of you who like to keep score, I was absolutely zero for three. I, I was. I just I felt lost. I remember feeling lost. And when Tony, my older sister, introduced me to the gospel of Jesus Christ, I, I, I still remember, this was about 35 years ago now for me, I remember the experience of feeling found. It was, I couldn't believe it, that there, not only was there a God, I had always believed there was some kind of God, I'd just never done anything about it. And when I learned through my sister and then some of the youth ministry in this little local church, that not only is there a God, but this God has a personality, those of you who aren't followers of Christ, I'm sure you're contending with what the church teaches, but what we claim is that there is a God, he's all-powerful, he's all-knowing, but also, and most poignantly, he's all-loving. And, and when you look at the gospel of Jesus, it gets weird, because the path and the promise are basically the same thing. Jesus is the path, and Jesus is the promise. Jesus is the path to Jesus. When you first hear it, it feels like a trick, but it works. Uh, and I guess if you want to get technical, the promise isn't just Jesus. The promise is what Jesus can give us, which is actually and truly peace, freedom, and love. This is what we actually get with Jesus. We get freedom from our shame and our regret. We get peace in the deepest in the finest corpuscles of our being, we get to relax into the unconditional love of God, the creator of the universe. It's an amazing promise. It also gets weirder with Jesus. Not only is Jesus the path and the promise, in every other gospel, if you start examining all of the things that you put your hope in, you start examining every other gospel, you have to pay something. It, it costs you to get something. But with Jesus' gospel, Jesus pays. Uh, that's how you actually know a false gospel. If you study all of the religions, I'm, I'm not just talking about the promise of better coffee on Times Square. I'm also talking about the Roman Empire's God system, the Greek God system, the Egyptian God system, actually every modern religion except, except Jesus of Nazareth. In every one of those paths, the human pays for the sake of the God to appease the God, keep the God off your back, please the God, sacrifice, cost. But the true gospel, the God pays for the sake of the human. One of the simplest ways I know how to measure the gospels I'm living for is to see who's paying. And when I find that I'm paying and I'm not getting the reward that I'm promised, it helps me to die to that gospel. And it gives me a better chance of living for the one true gospel. In the days of Advent, 
the, the first advent I'm talking about, the first time before Jesus was born in those days in the first century, there were a couple of core gospels uh, uh, poking around. Rome, as I've mentioned, had its own gospel. It's called the Pax Romana, is what they called it in Latin back then. It just means the peace of Rome. It turns out that Rome was also offering a promise and a path, and what you would get is peace. Now, here's what's really true. That was absolute propaganda. What we really know is a very small handful, the lucky, they got peace, and the majority were oppressed, enslaved, violently persecuted, so the few could get peace. Maybe you were born into it. You were a Roman citizen by birth. Maybe you were a good salesman and you knew how to bribe somebody. Maybe you could enslave yourself and ingratiate yourself to a family and just hope that the gods were kind enough that that family's children would all die so that when your master died, he would not have children to bequeath his citizenship to and you would become a Roman citizen and you'd be somebody, the Pax Romana. Uh, Not only the Roman Empire uh, that had um, a a promise for a very few, but even Jesus' own people, the, the Judaizers of the day, They had a path and a promise, very similar promise to what Jesus offered, the promise of peace, shalom is what they called it and what they even call it today. But by golly, did it involve a complex set of rules, the target very hard to fit. You had to live with a lot of low-level shame that you'd never come close to hitting the target. You paid, sacrifice, financial offerings. You had to sacrifice a sheep, or if you didn't have enough money, you could sacrifice a pigeon. It's right there in your Bible. Those in poverty get to sacrifice a pigeon, because as it turns out, even in the Roman Empire, there was a pigeon population problem, and they just were environmentalists back then. They're like, well, we can solve that. There's a lot of poor and a lot of pigeons, so we'll let the poor sacrifice pigeons. And it was kind of an Elton John circle of life situation when you look at it. And uh, this personal holiness code that was so burdensome and then wicked, angry religious police force ready to keep you in line. Sometimes I wonder if this is partly why the church absolutely exploded in popularity in the first century because it wasn't exclusive and it wasn't violent and it didn't oppress people and it didn't hold a dangling carrot that you could never reach. Anybody could come Anybody could follow Jesus. It was dead simple and everybody was welcome. The gospel where God pays the human benefits, the gospel where the human being's identity, our core identity, is rooted and established in love. Whatever you've done, whatever has been done to you, you're eligible and worth loving. Washed clean, the old is gone. In Christ, you are now a new creation. That's a hard gospel to believe. I'll be honest. It's a hard gospel to believe. It has all kinds of ramifications. One of my favorite scholars is a woman named Sarah Rudin, and she wrote a book called Paul Among the People, and she started rummaging around in the teachings of Paul. She didn't like Paul because she was a feminist, and she didn't like that Paul said that women should wear a veil in church. That really ticked her off. So in the book, Paul Among the People, she actually talks about, she said, I used to keep Paul chained up in the backyard, but one day I decided to unchain him and take a look at him, and she studied the the, uh, culture of veils in the first century Roman Empire. Now, in the Roman Empire, if you were a Roman citizen, you got to wear a veil. But... 
If you were a slave, no veil for you. You had to shave your head so everyone knew you were a slave. If you were a prostitute, no veil for you. Even more so, if you were a former slave and a former prostitute, never eligible for a veil. Wearing a veil in the Roman Empire meant you had status. That way you could look at everyone's head, especially the women, and figure out who's somebody, who's a nobody, who should I honor, who can I exploit. And Paul says, you're coming to church, ladies? No longer a slave, no longer a prostitute. In this church, you're my sister, Paul says, and you are God's daughter. Wear a veil, you're somebody. It's amazing. It's amazing. Outside and garbage in the empire and a beautifully remade human being in the church. This is what I love about new life is, is our culture is getting more and more hostile, more and more violent, more and more combative with each other. The level of anxiety in our society is off the charts. And this can be a place of relief where everybody's welcome and everybody gets to be somebody without judgment and fear. That's not bad. Now, if we turn from our culture and move into what I've asked us to do today and consider our interior beliefs, how can this gospel sink into the way I think, my thinking patterns, the way I see myself? Because what I've found in my life is even though I say I believe the gospel, and actually as a preacher, even though I can proclaim the gospel in a way that would make you cry, I have struggled my whole life to believe it for myself that God loves me particularly. Now, I believe God loves me generically because there's 7 billion people in the world and God's job is to love us, so he loves me generically. Like those of you who are Broadway fans, uh, Les Miserables, I believe that I'm just prisoner 24601. God, God loves me. But I struggle to believe that God loves me particularly. Um, the, 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 some of the family scripts I picked up when I was young, I know this church does some of that work. I picked up the message that others have it worse. You know, no matter what I'm going through, someone else has it worse, which quite honestly is most of the time true. Others have it worse, and the second script was, it's not that bad. Whatever you're going through, it's not that bad. You know, look on the bright side. You know, so for example, in a very simple way, if I'm jumping on the trampoline as a kid, and I scrape my knee and my knee's bleeding, and I come into my mum, 1970s, 1980s parenting, lots of saliva, rub it on the knee, you don't need a Band-Aid, get out there, it's not that bad, others have it worse. Now, listen, I'm not saying this to blame anybody. My parents are amazing parents, we have a great loving relationship. Uh, as a parent myself, I unintentionally send my kids scripts and they make meaning out of it too. This is not about blame, but what it is about is when it comes to talking to my heavenly father, I never want to bother him with my needs because others have it worse and it's not that bad. And so over the years, a Teflon layer around my heart, a little door in it, locked from the inside, I can open it and close it on my command and so maybe I would do something well and someone would compliment me and I would lie and say, oh, thanks very much, that's great, but my heart would have a different story. Oh, come on now, you could have done better than that. That's not it. Have you ever noticed that with some people, maybe you're one of these people, they can't stand there like a man or in the wonderful words of Colin Hay, like a woman if you are one. They cannot stand there like a man or a woman and just receive a compliment. You can feel it. It bounces off the Teflon of the heart, this protective layer, this family script. The way I understand it is I call it the inner critic. I know this is not a, coined, a term that I've coined. It's a common uh, word, the inner critic. And what the inner critic is, is it's, it's the story you tell yourself when you don't live up to your own expectations of yourself. 
The inner critic is the story you tell yourself when you fall short of your own standards. So, for example, uh, one of the things I really value is being prompt and on time. And if I'm not prompt and on time, I get really anxious, and then my inner critic starts having a word with me. Um, another one, like, so I feel great courtesy. So if I find myself getting irritable, for example, with a telemarketer, because they call and I know their path and promise is not going to help me and, I, and they won't take no for an answer and I get irritable, then my inner critic says, you should know better by now. Um, one of the standards I have for myself is I believe that I should be able to pick up any skill quickly, even though that's completely unreasonable. I believe if I'm taking on a new skill, I should be good at it right away. Rich mentioned that I love to go fly fishing and I, I, I've fished all my life. I'm an ocean fisherman from Australia. The difference is when you fish in the ocean, you don't have to wonder if the fish is on the line. It's a very self-evident truth. But in fly fishing, it's very finicky. It's particularly finicky. So there I am knee deep in a trout stream, just beautiful place. And I can see the trout and, and they're feeding. I can, I can see their mouths opening and closing and they're, they're in the feeding lanes. And I cannot get a trout to take my fly. And my inner critic starts talking to me. I remember this was several years ago. It was one of the most poignant turning points in my life when my inner critic said, see how dumb you are? See how stupid you are? You're not even smarter than a stupid fish. That, that hobby that for me has always been a time of worship and joy becomes another force of condemnation. What is that? So what I'm going to invite you to do, I'm going to ask you a couple of questions now. But these are deeper questions. These might be questions that you take home. That maybe you, especially if you're in a study group, these would be great questions for you to share in your study group, and we'll have them on the screen for you. Two questions. What message does your inner critic send? It's painful work. You kind of have to rummage around into some dark areas. You have to take a look at the message that your inner critic send. Mine that says, you should know better by now. I can't believe you did it that way. You're so stupid. Some of these deeper messages. And then the second question, how would you describe that message to somebody? What message does your inner critic send? Now, as you're capturing the message of your inner critic, it's very helpful to make note of the path it's putting you on and the promise it's offering. Because what you'll find very quickly is it's a path to nowhere. It's a hole. The gospel of Jesus leads you somewhere to life and freedom and joy. Your inner critic sends you into a hole. And then the second question, how would you describe it to someone? If you want to try this tool, uh, what you do is you simply get a group of people you feel safe with. Maybe it's your study group. And you all take turns on the hot seat. One of you has to go first. That's, that's tough. And you say, okay, I'll go first. That's what I did for you right now in this message. And here's, here's the message of my inner critic. Here's what I say to myself. The rest of you are going to get out a piece of paper and you're going to write down descriptors. So, for example, when you hear my inner critic, you should know better by now. Why did you do it that way? You're no more stupid. You're so stupid. You're not even smarter than a stupid fish. These messages. How would you describe that to someone? I would write down the adjectives. I'd say condemning. I'd say harsh, unrelenting, unforgiving. Uh, you might also use metaphors. Those of you who are more creative, you might say trapped or um, drowning, can't win in a hole. And then as you go around, each of you can take turns sharing your inner critic. It's, there's, there's real power in saying it out loud. I, I know this is brave, but if you just keep it in, it'll just, it'll just be a tape loop that stays 
looped in there, but Paul uh, invites us for our minds to be renewed by the Holy Spirit. And one of the key parts of that is confession. It's very brave. You get in a group and you say it out loud. And you feel very vulnerable and then your friends write down the adjectives. And what you can do after that is you can now write down the adjectives of the gospel, of the one true gospel. 1 John 3, 19 and 20. This is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in God's presence. If our hearts condemn us, we know that God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. This, John says, is how we know that we belong to the truth, how we can set our hearts at rest. There's the peace. This is the promise. If our hearts condemn us, in a critic. We know that God is greater than our hearts. That's what I call a threat. John's very polite, very kind. I love the way John threatens us here. You think you know something? You're comparing yourself to the God of the universe who knows everything? God knows better than you do. Just ask yourself, new life, why is it that the story we tell ourselves has more power over us than the story of God? This is the battle for our mind to believe the gospel of Jesus Christ more than we believe ourselves. It's very difficult to do. New Life is famously an ethnically diverse church, many nationalities in New Life. And so I like to think that I'm not the only person in this church who's from a Commonwealth nation. I know most of you, you like to dump tea in a harbor, but some of us are queen saluters. Some of us have a coin in our pocket that doesn't have Lincoln's head on it. It has the Queen's head. And this may sound odd to you, but the Queen of England is my sovereign, human sovereign, of course. I come from a constitutional monarchy. Now, let's be honest, it doesn't affect my day-to-day -day living. And much like USA, Australia holds a polite grudge against England for sending us to Terra Australis all those years ago on convict ships and putting us in chain gangs to get a new country started. And yes, in case you're curious, on my mother's side, we were started by a mule thief who was married to a prostitute. They served seven years and then they were free. They got a ticket of leave. They met and married. They had 14 children, John and Catherine Warby. And for years, I thought he was a horse thief. And then two summers ago, I learned from my aunt who did some research, he stole mules. He was a mule thief. I've lost all respect for my ancestor. Anyway, the point is that the Queen of England is my sovereign, and while I doubt very much that I'll ever meet her, if she were to summon me, it would be an honor to meet her. I have a great respect for the Queen. I would happily shake her hand, but I would not speak. You probably are aware of this, but when you're in the presence of the Queen, they give you a set of instructions. The first is you stand there, she speaks first. And then once she has spoken, you are now allowed to address her, and certainly what you would never do is correct her because she's the sovereign. Can you imagine mansplaining to the queen? <laughs> now God, Christians, those of us who are followers of Christ, God's our sovereign. And of course, God's different than a human sovereign. The author of Hebrews says that we don't just have to wait to be summoned. We can come in anytime we like because we're not God's subjects. We're God's sons and daughters. So we don't even have to knock on the door of the office. God's at work. He's on the phone. Just walk right in. It's an open invitation, full access. It's stunning. But I still think we have gotten way too comfortable talking back. Your inner critic says, you're no good. 
God says, you're fearfully and wonderfully made. Your inner critic says, well, God knows you generically. Jesus says, God knows the very number of hairs on your head. I've got to say, as I get older, that's easier for God. When I was younger, <laughs> got to take time, maybe fearfully and wonderfully made. And we say, you should know better by now. And God says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. God says, woman, who condemns you? She says, no one, sir. Then neither do I condemn you. Go and be free. Sin no more. This is the way the message translation puts that same passage. 1 John three nineteen. This is the only way we'll know that we're living truly living in God's reality, it's also the way to shut down debilitating self-criticism, even when there's something to it. For God is greater than our worried hearts. He knows more about us than we do ourselves. It's difficult, isn't it, to be loved by God, just to stand there and let God love you. It's very difficult. What I came to discover is it hurts before it feels amazing because it's unconditional, I can't control it. I just have to open myself up vulnerably to be hurt and also be loved. And I wonder this Advent season what our life might look like if we realize that the light is shining in the darkness of the way we think. I wonder what it would look like for us to get very clear on the path and the promise of our inner critic and the path and the promise of Jesus and hold them side by side, both sets of adjectives, and then ask yourself the simple question, why do I elevate my opinion of myself over God's opinion of me? Because I think that's humble. There's something sick in the church where we think being critical of ourselves is humility. No, that's arrogant. Standing in the presence of the king saying, I know better than you do. And what would it look like to live by faith and believe what God says is true and die to the voice of our inner critic? Just a word of warning, particularly for those of you who are perfectionists, who hear one message like this and then expect to live it out perfectly. Your inner critic will just use this as another form of condemnation. It takes a while, it took me several years, and still I, I succumb once in a while. What I've learned about my inner critic is I can't stop it showing up for work. It still clocks in, but I don't have to pay it anymore, and I can't stop it from coming in the office, but why am I giving it the corner office of my brain? Why am I giving it the best real estate of my brain? What would my life look like if I gave God the prime real estate of my thinking? Uh, a prayer that's helped me, i will just put this on the screen for you, is what if I were at least as blank to myself as God is? What would my life look like if I were at least as loving to myself as God is, at least as patient with myself as God is? What would my life look like if I was as forgiving of myself as God is. Just as we close, I'd like to give us a time of prayer and this will be a time of guided silence. So it might help you just to take everything out of your hands. Those of you watching from home, you can do the same thing. Just take everything out of your hands and just what I know is a common practice here in your life, just a hands in an open posture, either on your lap or in the air, whatever's comfortable. You can open your eyes or close your eyes. I promise you God doesn't mind either way and just some silence, and just a time of releasing where you can inquire, give your inner critic to God, just hand it over. What's that message? What do you want to give to God?
Just while your hands are in an open posture, God, my prayer is that your love, your peace, your freedom, these incredible life-giving gifts that you give us through Jesus Christ, Lord, would they sneak through the defenses of our heart? Would your voice speak clearer and louder than the story we tell ourselves, Lord? Would we exchange the truth for a lie? Would we exchange these lies for your truth, Lord? And would we live like it's true? Would you be kind to us, Father, and give us patience with ourselves as we practice this new way that we can encounter the love of God we so desperately believe in? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's all stand together as we prepare to take communion, which is a really wonderful way of responding to this powerful message. You can feel free to grab the elements that you've received as you walked in. And for those of you watching online, feel free to grab some bread and um, if you have juice or something like that, wine, feel free to grab that as we prepare. One of the ways that the message of the inner critic comes forward is in moments of communion where maybe the inner critic says, you don't deserve to come to the table. Look how inconsistent your prayer life is. Look how inconsistent your church attendance is. Look at your struggles. Look at your sins. Look at your addictions. And perhaps the inner critic is saying, you don't deserve to come to this table. And yet we are reminded that we come to the table not in our name, but in Christ's name. We come not in our performance, but in his performance. We come not in our righteousness, but in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's why we're able to come to the table. And so I want to invite you just again. I, I love what Steve said. We are invited in one sense to, to talk freely with God. But there is something Steve helped us with to nuance this. It's often the case we're too free to talk back at God and to deny what God has already spoken over us. Where have you been talking back to God in such a way that you are negating the affirmation that God has already spoken to you? And I want to give you a moment for your own confession, your own repentance. And then we'll pray a prayer of confession. Let me invite you to close your eyes. Where have you been talking back to God? And could you ask for forgiveness, for grace, to live into the loving affirmation that God has offered over us? Take a moment and then we'll pray a prayer of confession. Let's pray this prayer of confession. We have it on the screen together. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we have sinned against you and our neighbor through our own fault, in thought, in word, in deed, in what we have done and what we have left undone. For the sake of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, forgive us all our offenses 
and grant that we may serve you in newness of life to the glory of your name. Amen. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me as the people of God rescued by the broken body of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's all receive together. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he returns. As the people of God, freely forgiven by the poured out blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's all receive together. Lord, we thank you for the gifts of the bread and the cup, for the ways that your words of love and life and light overwhelm even our own inner darkness. We sing to you now as a response, words of praise. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's respond in song together. Oh, come my faithful, bow before our
Amen. Let's thank Pastor Steve for coming and blessing us. And... Amen. As I mentioned, I'll be downstairs in the lobby area. Steve will be with me. And so if you'd like to just thank him for the message and uh, uh, he'll be down there with me. So feel free uh, to do that. As we close, let me invite our prayer team to come to my right. We end every gathering with an opportunity for prayer because one of the ways that the light of God dispels darkness is through our intercession the ways that we speak words of life over one another. And I imagine that some of you have come here today and you've had an inner critic, not just for the past week, not the past year, the past decade, 20 years, your entire life, you've lived with this incessant story, these messages that circle in your head. And you just need the light of Jesus Christ to dispel the darkness. And one of the ways we do that is through prayer. And so as the Holy Spirit leads you, some of you are sensing, yes, I'm tired of this cycle of repeating these thoughts over and over again. And what I'm telling to myself, I want to live according to a different story, a different narrative, a new set of messages. We'd love to pray for you along those lines. At the end of our service, for those of you watching online, one of our pastors will be leading a sermon discussion time. It's a time for about 30 minutes. Uh, if you're in this room here and you want to join that, you can do so on your phone as well. There's a link on Facebook, on YouTube, and at uh, newlife.nyc. And so if you just want to have a conversation to just process some of what you've heard, uh, feel free to join us there as well. I imagine some of you came into this uh, meeting today and some of you are watching online and you've never said yes to Jesus Christ. Maybe you've said yes to a church service. Maybe you've said yes to reading your Bible but you've never said yes. You've never said, I wanna surrender my life to Jesus Christ. I wanna follow him. I wanna live in his love. And if something's stirring in your heart, you might not be able to even articulate, but there's something stirring in your heart. We want to serve you and help you to take the next step in your spiritual journey. And there's two ways you can do that. If you're in this room and there's something stirring in you saying, I do want to follow Christ. I do want to surrender. I do want to receive forgiveness of sins. Our prayer team would love to help you take that next step. In addition to that, if you're watching online or if you're in this room here, if you want to take the next step, we can serve you along those lines as well. You can just text the phrase, yes to Jesus, to the number on the screen here and the number that you're watching on the screen as well to 718-424-0122. And if you want to take the next step, we would love to serve you and help you take the next step in your relationship with God. As we close, let me invite you to open your hands towards heaven to receive a blessing. We end every gathering with blessing because the world is filled with cursing. And we want to be people who are marked by receiving blessing, not just so we can keep it to ourselves, but that we may be a source of blessing and life and light to the people around us. And so whether you're watching online, whether you're in this space here, let me invite you to open up your hands so I can bless you here. With your hands and your hearts in a posture of receiving, brothers and sisters, sons and daughters of the living God, may the Lord bless you and keep you. Make his face to shine upon you and fill you with peace. And may you walk out of this building and out of this online gathering in the power of the Holy Spirit. 
receiving the truth about what God says about you. May you live in the affirmation and in the love of God. And may you offer that love to the world around you. I bless you all in the strong, in the beautiful, in the gracious name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. Grace and peace to you all.